Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Why do we find something funny? Why is it that some jokes get old so quickly and others can be told time and time again and still make us laugh? Why was the first Hangover movie so funny and the second one not nearly as funny at all? These questions and many others are addressed in a great book called Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy. Todd McGowan, its author, is a professor of film and television studies at the University of Vermont. He's my guest today. We had a great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it just half as much as I did. I give you Todd McGowan. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I told you here in our little pre-conversation that I, I this conversation is because of Facebook. And I saw someone excited about your book who's a Facebook friend. And one of those friends, it's not really, I, I've never even met the person. And I think I might know where they're from, but they have good taste in books. So I was like, okay, I want to, so I called your publicist person at the publisher and yeah. wound up uh, and actually have been reading the book over a period of time. I, I was reading some jokes from the book to a stranger on a plane. Like you tell this really interesting joke about the bear that's going to eat the two guys. Yeah, and the, yeah. And I'm and, and she, it is kind of funny. And I was like, yeah, you see, there's lack and excess. I'm explaining the theory on a plane. So my question, you write a book called Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory, a theory of Comedy. I feel yeah. like you write a book like this for one of two reasons. Okay. You're really funny. And you're like, I got to explain it. Are you like to be funnier? <laughs> so and, and you theorize. I, it, I mean, is it is it one of those two? Poles? It is one of those two. It's the latter. I have to. I, I'm sad to say, but I. I in fact, I was interviewed by the student paper last year, and they said, "What's your real goal in teaching when you're teaching a class?" And I said, "Look, I want them to learn like Kant, Hegel, whatever. But my real goal is to get them to laugh at a few jokes that I tell them this semester." So, so it really was. <clears throat> excuse me, but part of the as I was writing the book. I got to ask, I would ask students like, tell me some joke, give me some jokes. And if it's a really good joke, I'll put it in and I'll even give you credit. And so then I got this whole sort of lineup of jokes that I could use. And I, and I, I use them in my classes all the time. Like I'm constantly, so it actually, your question is exactly right. Like I didn't think I was funny enough and I wrote the book and then I got a bunch more jokes. And so hopefully I'm funnier now to teach. But as a, as a kid, did, did you like, comedians and comedic things i mean i didn't this... really love it no i mean i it's interesting that you asked that because i um i mean i wasn't i no, my mom was funny so she would constantly she would constantly do like she would and in jokes like this like i would be taking a shower and this sounds like it's gonna go the wrong way but <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't jump in on me in the shower she she would like I'd be in the shower. She'd take a, a cup of cold water and just throw it over the shower. Just so like screwball kind of like, like very much screwball comedy. So that the kind of, that was the kind of thing. And she, and I also loved as a kid, I, and my mom was like this too. She was very ironic. So she would say like, I get a, you know, if I got a B on our report card, she'd say, Oh, nice job. And that, you know, like that kind of, I mean, a little bit mean sometimes, but usually, usually when you, when you use the word ironic, do you ever like find yourself? saying did i did i just really mean coincidentally <laughs> like I, I, but whenever somebody uses that I, I go back to the last more set song and think, well that's a, these that's are a, kind of a disaster that song, yeah right yeah right except don't you think i mean i've we i have a colleague who 
who absolutely, it totally bothers him when people misuse the term irony. But I think and in a lot of the cases in the Morissette song, aren't they actually situational irony? So they're not, it's not totally like the guy, what's the one, like I waited my whole life to get in the flight and then the plane crashes down. And I, isn't that ironic? Right. So that is kind of situational irony, right? Right. It's not deep literary irony, but right. it is. Yeah. There yeah, are. So it, it's not terrible, but it's, yeah, I, I take your, I do, <laughs> I do, I guess. I've been ironic my whole life, so I, I feel more comfortable with my use of that term. But I, I, I have students that where I'm, I have the same kind of thing that you just said. Yeah. They, no, they, what, yeah. what's the best student joke recently you've received? Uh, the best student joke I got this. I, it's in the book, actually. So recent, I haven't asked students recently, but the best one is in the book. It's, it's the guy, I'm, I assume you remember it. The, the, the guy goes, uh, God says, I'm going to end the world. And he said, he brings a rabbi and nun and a priest together. And he says, I want some advice on how to end the world. And the nun goes, whatever you do, save the children. And the, and the priest goes, fuck the children. I'm sorry. I just said it wrong. The rabbi goes, fuck the children. And the priest goes, do you think they'd let us do that? So, I'm sorry. I ruined the joke, but thank you for laughing anyway. But, uh, but I think it's a, it was a great joke. And the student was, he was so happy to come tell me the joke because he thought this, I know this is going to get in the book. And he was right. It got in the book. Do you think that you are Larry? So Larry David hosted Saturday Night Live yeah. the, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I remember Seinfeld saying he was like Letterman. They're these really funny guys that can't really do stand up because they're so self reflective about people. Are la- and at one point, Larry David did I'm doing pretty good, right? Huh? Like, I mean, is that, do you, do you feel like as somebody who's a, a, theor- a theorist of comedy, yeah. do you have a little bit of that? Is it kind of like that? The, yeah. So I don't once think you, I could once you're do. funny, you're, you're kind of like, oh, wait, uh, here, it's happening, right? In hey, fact, here it is. <laughs> right. And in fact, most of my comedy in class is just reflective. Com- like, it's, it's like, you know, comedy about the fact that what I'm saying is not funny or something, you know, like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's never, it's almost never like a direct, like I have to, I have to really work on coming up with that initial joke. And then the rest of it is kind of like just reflective comedy. So I think, I think it's hard to, so I could never do stand up. It would just be a total disaster. You told me you actually grew up in a pretty conservative religious home. Yeah. And it's funny. One of the things I think, like the central premise of your book, right, is that comedy is always interplay of lack and excess. Yes. And and early in human development, right, we have like there's usually source person kind of rupture and there's lack and excess and trying to get back there. And so do you think there's anything in your own conservative religious upbringing like like there's a lot of lack and a lot of excess in there is. World. yeah how did how did that shape your own sort of philosophical perspective? yeah that's a fascinating question uh i think it i never thought of that before but i think that it probably did i mean i think that you know there would be these moments of like like total depri- you know like deprivation because we're trying to avoid falling into sin and then there's these moments of ecstatic excess and i i guess what's interesting is i think in my upbringing and i think this is true of fundamentalism in general is that they were kept apart. And so I, 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 th- I know I never thought this, that, but I, maybe the theory came from, I realized that those moments when they did come together, that, that was funny. You know, that was a, that was when it made it funny. But I do think that that's, I mean, I sort of say this in the book that normal society keeps those two things apart, but I think, I mean, my God, fundamentalism does it more than, more than anything, right? Like, you know, like those incredible moments of ecstasy and like speaking in tongues. I mean, my church didn't go that far, but, um, 
but nonetheless, like real ecstatic, you know, moments of prayer or whatever. And then, and then countered that with, you know, like fasting or, you know, all kinds of ways of imposing lack. So yeah, I think that's a, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because you saw, you say that society is this project that keeps lack and excess, at least in tension, right? I mean, they're, right, they're, right. It, but so if if fundamentalist sectarian religion exacerbates the tension, you talk about addiction as fusing it almost, right? Yeah. Like the ad, the addict kind of it it, 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 it it's it's funny because you talk about W. C. Fields kind of chronic drunk character, and and even though we wouldn't laugh at addiction politely, yeah. even though people do, and you talk about there's these slurs we use for addicts, despite yeah. all of the progress we've made about talking about this stuff. But that's that's an interesting thing. Is is maybe like. Because you know Russell Brand's theory, which is many people, is that the, the the problem, the opposite of addiction, isn't sobriety; it's human connection. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder if that sectarian fundamentalism and the addiction thing, both of them are are in some ways there's a paucity of connection. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right. I mean, I find addiction. I mean, it's horrible, obviously, for people that are addicted, but I do think it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon because. It, it, it's an, I, I would, I read it as this obviously unconscious, but attempt to over, to, to achieve some kind of genuine excess. But, but the, but the, the problem is that it, by, by acting excessively, you produce more and more lack. And this is why I think the, the addict constantly tries to use more and gets less as a result. You know, and, I, and that's the, I think that's the trajectory of addiction sort of in every case. It's funny too, because I, I, you talk, I think, you can see the comedic value, value, or at least the comedic examples and brilliant ones of the drunk. It, it's hard with like heroin. I know that's a fascinating. I didn't. I should have talked about that in the book, but yeah, like Fields. Of course, I, I don't think Fields is even that. I almost. I I wonder if it's temporal, like if it's or historical. You know what I mean? Like like at a certain time, maybe people could have laughed even at heroin addiction. And I even think it's hard for us to laugh at drunkenness today. I think. Like, uh, leaving Las Vegas is not obviously not a comedy like that. And, and I feel like the comedy is where we're laughing at drunkenness, like hangover or, uh, I don't know, bridesmaids, whatever. like even there, they're not addicted. You know, that it's like clearly a one, it's clearly demarcated, right? Like it's a one night thing. It's a one night of debauchery and then they're going to go back to their normal life. So I wonder if it's not historical that we can't laugh at heroin and we can't really laugh at drunkenness anymore. But, but Dave Chappelle made a funny crack addict like he was really good he was I mean, funny I mean, yeah. yeah and he had a crack addict character yeah. that was i mean do you think that's because there's something also about the lack and excess like you see a group of people systemically oppressed and you know white get certain kinds of convictions for cocaine yeah the same drug in a distilled form gets exacerbated so i mean is it because the matrix it, matrix is so absurd like a lack and excess combo. yeah i think that's that out of that maybe yeah. you can actually make something yeah 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 i think that's right i think that's right so at what point when you you leave kind of ohio uh and your conservative religious upbringing at what point do you are you reading psychoanalytic theory and lacan and thinking about subjectivity and hegel like at what what was the gateway drug the gateway <laughs> drug <laughs> that's a great question the so my first break was uh I was an undergrad and I read, uh, Karl Marx and that was, <laughs> and my dad about killed me. 
Because he, I remember what he said. He said, I paid whatever, it wasn't very much, for you to go to college, for you to come turn into a pinko communist. That was his exact, <laughs> that was pretty great. So that was the first thing. And then it was Freud. I mean, Freud had a real, Freud was the first time that I really, you know, thought about what, how I grew up and, and, you know, you know, re, it totally reshaped me. So, and, and, and I probably stuck. Like, I don't think I've, I think Freud is the, I mean, Hegel as well, which is, he's pretty powerful in the book, but Freud's been a real kind of base of, of my thinking for, for a long since graduate school. Yeah. How did you get from Freud to Hegel? Like, what was the... That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I read them both starting about the same time and I actually was into Hegel first and I, I was, I always thought of them as doing different things and then, at a certain point, I kind of got the sense that they were, that the project was related, that, that, that even though Freud never used the term dialectic, that what, and even though, I mean, and also the conspicuously missing term in Hegel is unconscious. And so I guess I thought you can't really have dialectics without the unconscious and you can't have an unconscious without dialectics. And so that's how that came together for me, which I don't think a lot of people talk about. I mean, I know there are people that there's a lot of people now that think uh, psychoanalysis and Hegel sort of in tandem, but I don't think people have made that connection between unconscious and dialectics in the way that I would say that, that that's what came up apparent for me for people that slept through their yeah. philosophy class their sophomore year in college yeah can you tease out a little bit like dialect there's the whole dialectical tradition right yeah. it, it, can you tease out th how you're using the term in yeah, relationship sure. to can i tease out unconscious first because i feel you, like yes yes yeah because i feel like that's the term like i have students i have an no absolute... on this podcast we go in alphabetical order okay. dialectics first unconscious second no yeah <laughs> okay, of course very good very good so dialectics first so uh so for me, so, okay, right. So there's a whole dialectical tradition beginning with Plato that then runs and, and more or less disappears throughout the scholastic era. And then is, and even in the beginning of modern philosophy, and then it's kind of reinvented with Kant. But for Kant, so dialectic is contradiction. Dialectic is a, is a, for Kant a purely negative, uh, way of understanding things that, that grasps contradictions. And then we know we can't go any further. So the critique of pure reason, the transcendental dialectic is a whole expl exploration of certain problems of reason that Kant thinks are pseudo problems that we can't. And if we pursue them rationally, we see that there's no possible resolution for them. And so the, the, what Hegel adds to that is he says, no, really, when we uncover contradiction, we're actually uncovering something positive. Like that's a, and so, so for, and I think this would get wrongly gets, I think this is the great, I think there's great violence done to Freud and great violence done to Hegel, but with Hegel, it is that he's a philosopher of synthesis, that it's all about like, there's a, there's a, you know, a thesis, antithesis, synthesis that never appears in his work, obviously. And, and I shouldn't say obviously, because a lot of people think it does. Uh, that's the way it's taught. Too, that's right? the way it's taught. Correct. Here we go. We have that, uh, like feudalism, or, or we go from like antiquity to feudalism, then the synthesis comes out cap. Right, right. We exactly. say a little bit of you and a little bit of me. It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Exactly. It's perfectly put. And, and so, but I, my, I see in Hegel, and I think most people that are Hegel, like serious thinkers or serious scholars about Hegel think that for him, it's actually contradiction does not produce some kind of new synthesis. Instead, like contradiction is actually the end point of thought. Like that's what we uncover is contradiction and, and contradiction. I mean, that little, 
image that you had of thesis, antithesis, synthesis is right in the sense that contradiction is the motor of our thinking and our action, but it's not, what's wrong is that there's no, it's not resolved. Right. right. So what you're saying is that the truth in that pedagogical device is that when contradictions perhaps get a certain kind of tension, a new contradictory reality is formed with its own its own lack, its, its own, own excess. The only thing, yeah, good. Yeah, no, I was just going to say in place of the other. Say, like, I, I actually just I finished a book on Hegel, and it's about this exact point. My like uh, the the typical reading of Hegel, even among, I think among most people that are relatively in the know, is that uh, what what gets like we one contradiction gets solved, and we move on to some other higher sort of you know, solution to it that then itself produces another contradiction. But my claim is actually that Hegel's idea is that one contradiction gets solved and then we pr- go to another level where it's a greater contradiction. So that the, the, his books are actually about how these contradictions are too easy because we can solve them very easily. And so then we, we want to get to what he thinks is the absolute contradiction. Yeah. It's interesting because in Karl Barth's history of 19th century theology, he's like, you know, it's not obvious Hegel didn't become the Protestant Thomas Aquinas, but maybe he should have been. I, that is totally my position. I think that Hegel really understands the, the incredible speculative genius of Christianity in a way that no one else does. I really, I'm, I'm utterly convinced of that. Like, I feel like, and my, as you, you know from the book, my boys are Jewish. And so they always laugh at me when I say I'm like totally Christian because I totally accept Hegel's understanding of Christianity and of, and like, I mean, his notion that, that, you know, that Christ is the, is like, is God brought down, like all of a sudden the God of the beyond is, is brought down to earth. That to me is a, is the incredible insight about, and it's a true. Like to me, that's the great insight of Christianity. And I think Hegel sort of grasps that. Yeah, it's funny because his wife went to church, right? Yeah. Hegel didn't. Hegel did not. Yeah. Uh, it, and so, on some level, right? Like church is like the um, what's the? It's the is it Vorstellung? Like the German, the picture language? Or is it? Is it yeah, so that's right. The, the picture language. So you got to go and like the common people kind of need these stories. The flood, the lepers. Like <laughs> George Costanza says, it was converted to orthodoxy. But Hegel saw. But there is something though that that actually death and resurrection, like God and death. Yeah, finite and infinite. I mean, you. T- it's funny because you tell this great joke in the book, right? About um, this Jewish guy, right? Can you tell it about he, he goes? At his, his he spends all this money on. Oh Jewish yeah, education. I love this joke. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's. Can a you Jew- tell that? Yeah. So there's a Jewish guy. He gives his son. He spends all his money giving his son a nice Jewish education, great bar mitzvah, and it turns out his son leaves high leaves school, leaves high school, converts to Christianity. He goes to the rabbi. He's like, "What did What did I do wrong?" He tells the story of the rabbi. The rabbi goes, "Funny you should say that." He goes, "I did the same thing. I gave my my son a great Jewish education. I gave him an incredible. I spent a ton of money on his bar mitzvah, and then he turned around and converted to Christianity." And the guy goes, "Well." What did you do, Rabbi? He goes. From the Rabbi goes. Well, I I went to God with the problem. And I said, God, I told I did you know I did all this. I told God the problem, and I said, you know, what do I do? And God goes. Funny you should say that. <laughs> so, so it's obviously like God did everything, you know, and and his son became 
Christian too. Yeah, and you talk about this tension of this Jewish kind of of the of the sort of appropriation. I mean, it's funny. I was at this meeting. It's called a group called Scriptural Reasoning, and it was Christians, Jews, and Muslims that get together yeah. and read each other's sacred texts, and they try to talk in terms of text. And and one of the Jewish participants said, "You know, I'm the only person here that's part of a tradition that's not supersessionist. <laughs> like the Christ, like the Christians come along and say we got the final revelation. Yeah, and then the Muslims come along and say, hey." Both of you, we got the final revelation. We didn't really have that. We're just kind of been here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think that it's, I mean, I think it's fascinating that theoretically, I think given the way that I theorize there's lack and excess, it should be that Christians have more jokes, but it's not even Mm. close. Like it's like, Jews have like no other religion is even close to them to the to like almost monopoly on jokes that they. Have. But I think it's I think it's tied to like the the double thing like the chosen people being the ones that are constantly oppressed throughout human history. You know that that lends itself to to comedy. I think one of the best podcasts on the internet I think is uh, Unorthodox. It's a Tablet Magazine and it's my friends do it and they're incredible journalists and they're. Uh, boss, that guy who funds and kind of runs tablets in Israel, and his grandson called, who was like nine with a Holocaust joke. So they said, okay, <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? The Holocaust. The Holocaust, too. And the kid goes, I thought you said you'd never forget. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great joke. That's a great joke. I'm going to read it? my class tomorrow when that <laughs> you could, Yeah, credit um, un- the Unorthodox podcast. Okay. It's, fa- it's fantastic. That's a great um, joke. Yeah. Can I read you something? Yeah. That, and then I want to get more into your book, but I, I want to stay on our train of thought about Christianity. This is um, from Tomas Halik, who's becoming, I think, for me, he's the leading light in theology. He's a Catholic priest from the Czech Republic who he knew Vaclav Havel, so he couldn't even get in the bullshit state Catholic seminary because he was blacklisted. So he was trained underground. Like they bring in Charles Taylor and these philosophers, wow. Cardinal, and he was a psychotherapist. That was his cover. And, okay. under, and, then, when, and then when the Iron Curtain fell, he... It be, you know, he became a priest. He baptized 36 adults at Easter. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a guy that, and he's so far ahead of the curve as far as like, I mean, people here talk, oh, we're getting secular. We can say Merry Christmas again. I mean, this is, we don't even know what secularity is. Right. right, right, right. But, but he says this, because I, I read you this because I was thinking about, you, you talk about Nietzsche in the book, and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard being these two great comedic, maybe the great comedic philosophers in the 19th century, even though they have a different position on whether God exists. Yeah. But the irony that's shot through in the comedy is it, 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 their observance of lack and excess in the human condition, right? They're, they're, these two could have been really good friends. They could have um, been friends, yeah. Yeah. Uh, too bad Kierkegaard yeah. was not super sociable and shipwrecked in Denmark over there. <laughs> it's just not, you know, um, but Halik, Halik, um, he just won the Templeton Prize two years ago. Oh, well. he, write, he writes this uh, about Nietzsche, who he's read his whole life. He said, Young mentioned somewhere that indigenous tribes of primitives still living an ancient way of life reconciled with nature and original human nature distinguished between small, private dreams and big dreams that are of significance for the entire tribe. I always thought of Nietzsche's scene with the herald of God's death in the gay science as the record of a dream, but a big dream with prophetic significance for our entire tribe. At the same time, I felt that the message God is dead is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message just from God. But it was not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was 
not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Although I'm sort of torn. I wonder what your view on this is. I'm sort of torn between, you know, for Hegel, God was totally, I mean, what he likes about Christianity is that God is totally revealed. Mm -hmm. So it's a, and and he even calls it the revealed religion. And, you know, for Pat, and there's this whole other tradition like the, with Pascal and the geocache and like the, the notion of a hidden God. And I've, I've, and so that reminded me of that. And I, I, I wonder how, if those two things can be reconciled, you know, like that, that in some way, all when all is revealed, what's revealed is some kind of fundamental hiddenness. And I, 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 I kind of that's what I want to say. And I, I don't, maybe that's not right, but I feel like there's something to that. Yeah. yeah no, I think that's right. I remember I, a, a theologian George Hunzinger, uh, who was a Bart scholar, once saying something in a reading group. He said, you know, that certain traditions in Christian thought have sort of say, well, the the cross or whatever the Christ event that's the revelation and God, the mystery is behind it. Right. And, and Hunsinger said something like, no, the revelation, the mystery isn't behind the revelation. It's in and with it. Like what is one in three? Right. Crucified God. So the, so the contradiction of the mystery never, it, it's more pronounced in the revelation. Not, it doesn't dispel it. Right. right? I like think that it, has to be right. Yeah. I think it has, but I do find it hard to like, because I do think that the radicality of Christianity is this like revelation, like that there's none of like God isn't held back. Like God, you can no longer. And this is why I think a lot of contemporary Christianity is just frankly heretical. Like I think they're they hold on to this notion of that there's this hidden God, the father back there who's making all these judgments or, or like I was watching a football game last night, you know, someone praised God for helping them, whatever, you know, and I just thought, well, that, that's a, that's a heresy. That's not, that's a heresy. That's not a, that's not a nice kind of, you know, so, so that would be, if I was the, if I was the arbiter of, of religion, I would call that a heresy. But anyway, but, but so, so I, I do feel like I'm a little, I, I, this notion of the, that's why I'm a little uncomfortable with the notion of the hidden because I feel like what, that there, that, What's great about Christianity is this whole, this way in which there's no more of this God held back, making judgments, directing the show. And so I like that. But, but on the other hand, I, I take your point that there has to be some kind of like, like opacity that's still present there. Uh, and that gets made evident in, in revelation. Like I, I and, and like it, it also is, I think the opacity of the other person, right? Like that, that's what makes it sort of interesting to talk to someone that, that there's not, they're not like what's reveal, what they're revealing to us is sort of everything, but there's still some kind of like fundamental opacity that we can't get beyond. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Like when I teach undergrads on the first day of class, I'll often try to come up with some kind of icebreaker. Give me your name, where you're from, your yeah. major, and what superpower you would want. And whenever somebody says telepathy, I'm always like, well, because I try to tease out what some of the powers would be. And I say, you can't be Superman. You can get one. You get heat vision, flying, physical right. strength. You go, right. but telepathy, because I, I always said, you, you realize you could never have another relationship. Right, right. That's the end of your love life. I, right. And, and friendship and uh, any kind of meaningful. Right, anything. Human, right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, it's, 
it is this, it, it is, uh, now I always say Although, telekine- telekinesis because it's a twofer. You could make yourself fly. You could have the force. You could, if you need money, you could go to the roulette wheel and just go, oh, on Red 38, please. I feel like telekinesis is the best it's bang good. for your buck. If you can only get one. But don't you think telepathy, it's an, telepathy is an interesting question. This will come back to what you didn't allow me to finish with the unconscious because you made me <laughs> to right. talk about dialectics first. Like, isn't doesn't telepathy assume that the person knows themselves like like what what are you when you're telepathic what are you in touch with are you just in touch with their unconscious i mean sorry their conscious mind they're conscious yeah right 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 if it's if it's just their consciousness then i think their opacity remains because they're i mean i would just say like our the other's opacity is internal too like we like that's the whole i think that the genius of the idea of the unconscious is that we don't have that, you know, we don't have that sort of transparency to ourselves. Yeah. So the, the, the other, like in compliment to the Hegel, um, simple, simplistic, heuristic, you know, device that's probably silly. Like this is the iceberg thing, right? Like literally the tip of the iceberg, like, the conscious is that thing that they, oh the iceberg that's like 20 feet high maybe where yeah. where what's not present is the mass of the iceberg right that's what sinks the titanic right, right. it's not the, right is that i mean that's great th- yeah that's better than than uh that's quite good the, the, and in fact, the hegel thing <laughs> I, yeah yeah and i it's not bad and i think the only problem is that i find the, the, the students love to use the term subconscious because it gives them a sense of like okay it's not really this foreigner inside of me it's something that i can kind of i can deal with i can kind of you know work with and and and, and you know it'll it'll bother me a little bit but I can bring it up when I need to. So, so I think that's the big. So for me, subconscious is the equivalent of thesis, synthesis, antithesis. Oh, the sub. You're right. Because then, do people do subconscious? That even if I really get in a jam, like let's say, you know, I do go with Goldman Sachs and I become a decent person, a sort of a neoliberal. I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm giving money, whatever. But if I really get in a jam, and where's this um the old joke about like the guy goes to the offices? I think I had a a Freudian slip. His buddy says, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I I meant to ask my wife, could you pass the toast? And I said, you fucking bitch, you ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I say that, if it's subconscious, I could pay a professional to, it's just sub. I just, I got to do a little right, digging. It's right. there, but we're the unconscious. Like, what if you meet us? Un- what if you don't know how to, what yeah, if, absolutely. You know, the, the absolutely. complete mystery. Of, yeah, of, yeah. I love that joke, by the way. That should be, how's that not in the book? I knew, I even knew that joke. Yeah. I, there's so many, t- I went, there's the, the your time. Tiger Woods Jesus joke is my one of the my that's my favorite golf. My I love second, that joke. Yeah. That's my second favorite golf joke. What's the first one? And it's my oh gosh, <laughs> thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> it trades on all my bad voice stuff, but so this guy playing golf, uh, and, and he's you know not very accomplished, and he hits like a duck hook, and the ball goes in the woods. And he, being that he's not very good, he's the kind of guy that has to chase the ball. Yeah. So, yeah. so he goes in and he sees this little creature rubbing his head and it's a leprechaun. He says, well, laddie, you have me dead rights. I, I'll give you three wishes. And he says, well, I'm not a creative guy. I, I, I have no idea what I'd wish for. Well, obviously, I'll give you the three standards then. Well, sounds great. Well, first off, your golf game needs some work. So that's wish number one. Number two, I'm going to improve your financial life. And three, the 
best of all, your sex life. All right, be on your merry way. Well, a few months later, he's on that hole and he has a scratch golfer. He splits the fairway and he says, guys, I got to, you know, hit the bushes for a second. Uh, I'll be right back. He goes in. His little friend is there. Laddie, you're back. How did I do? Great. I'm a scratch golfer. You know, I, I, I'm, 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 the, I'm the talk of the club. And your financial life? Great. Every time I look at my wallet, there's a new $100 bill that wasn't there before. What about your sex life? I'm getting it two, sometimes three times a week. I've lost my power. So what's happened? No, it's great for a Catholic priest in a small parish. <laughs> <laughs> Lack and excess. Oh, that is a good, that's a good double Catholic golf joke, right? No, it's, it's great. It's, yeah. it's religious. It's golf. And yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I'm involved in both worlds. Although I, I, would, yeah. I don't know if I'm better at one than the other, actually. I don't know what the term good Christian always strikes me as not even ironic. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah. The golf, right, I, the, that, I've known that golf joke my whole life, and it, it, in fact, it was Jack Nicholas was the original, and then I, I changed it to Tiger Woods because I thought no one's going to know. Let's tell it for our listeners. Okay. All right. All right. So, so Tiger Woods and Jesus are golfing in heaven. And, no, that's not the joke. Moses and Jesus are <laughs> Moses golfing and in Jesus. heaven. <laughs> Moses and Jesus are golfing in heaven. And they're on a little par three and it's over a pond. And Jesus pulls out the, pulls out a, it's like 180 yards and he pulls out an eight iron, which is not the, not adequate club for a golfer of his skill to hit over the pond. And Moses is like, you can't hit an eight iron that far. And Jesus goes, no, well, Ty, I saw Tiger Woods play this hole and, or play a hole like this. And he used an eight iron. I'm going to use an eight iron. So Jesus hits his ball and it goes into the lake or the pond. He's like, ah, and he goes out, walks on water, gets his ball because he's Jesus and he brings it back to the tee area and then he tees it up and he goes, I'm going to hit this eight iron. I'm going to get it over this time. Moses is like, look, you think you're Tiger Woods. You're not Tiger Woods. You're not going to get it over. And Jesus is like, just watch. I'm going to do it. And so he takes a swing, hits the ball, and it goes right in the water again. So he says, okay, I'll just walk out and get it. So Jesus walks out in the water. By that time, they've taken so long in this hole, the next group comes up and they see Jesus walking out in the water. And the one golfer says to Moses, they're like, Who's that guy think he is out on the woods? Jesus, out on the, on the pond. Jesus Christ? And Moses goes, no, he thinks he's Tiger Woods. 
So to me, that's just like, it's the perfect joke because it's like, even Jesus, like, and what's nice about it is it's not just that Jesus screws up and has a bad golf game. It's that what's, what's transcendent about Jesus coincides with his inability to golf. So I think to me, that's the perfect joke. Truly God, truly man, truly human. I mean, this is the human condition, right? I mean, this, this real finitude. Yeah. Do you know, do you know this? I wonder if you know this film by Louis Buñuel, The Milky Way, La Voix Lactée. I've heard, I, I've heard of it. I do not know the film. Because there are some great things about, so Jesus is in it quite a bit, about a third of the film. And he's doing all these human things and it's really funny. Like his, like he's, he's getting ready to shave his beard and Mary goes, Oh son, don't shave. And then he doesn't shave. So they're like all these things that, that of course someone would do. Like he has to go to the bathroom. And so all these things. And, and I think it so goes against our image of like Christ. Okay. Yeah. He's human, but we don't want to think of him doing anything human, you know? Yeah. This is why I tend to not like gospel harmonies because at least even in the canonical gospels you have four distinct pictures and just like any of us right if we ask four people even four close people to us that knew slightly different pictures of us we'd get these and when you try to harmonize that it just gets less human it's like your facebook profile that you it's right. it's, it's, it's a all right i want to go back to lack and excess but i want to read you one more thing because okay. i was thinking about this that you would like this because you talk about in the hegel section the com the comic christ yeah. and i i've been reading for those few years this guy robert fair capon who was an episcopal priest from a Island, and he was also a New York Times food and wine critic. But he's one of the best commentators in the Bible, theologians, and he's funny. He says, "So you, you know, you have this text, Matthew eighteen, right? Where, and you know, for, for those that aren't super familiar with the New Testament, basically it's about confrontation and Jesus. They're asked how many times, you know, or, or actually, no, it's if someone sins against you, uh, you know, go to them, confront them. If they don't take to it." Right. Uh, bring a couple of people, some witnesses. If they don't do it again, bring them before the whole congregation. Yeah. If they don't, um, you know, fess up and, you know, get their act straight, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. No, the funny thing is, my whole thing, I'm, I'm accused of treating that everybody like Gentiles. So he's almost tipping his hat to right. the joke. Right. But the funny thing is, right before that is this whole parable of the lost sheep and the, uh, right. uh, not in the Lucan version, but in the Matthean version. And, and Capon says that basically Jesus is playing a gambit. Um, and you're, th- if, if Jesus is the white chess player and the disciples are black the opening move so is jesus white so the shepherd seeks the lost sheep unconditionally black you don't really mean that as practical advice do you (laughs) white okay so i'll make it practical forget the first story the shepherd is the new parable in the new parable gives the stupid sheep three chances to get found then he gives up on it black hey maybe that's a little tougher than you meant to be how about he gives it seven chances white aha gotcha how about 70 times seven and how about checkmate you thought i didn't really mean unconditionally huh yeah. And and, and k like, basically, if you look at what comes before and after, it has to be a joke. I mean, like, like it, it, the Matthew has to preserve it, like, because it was so funny and the things, and it's not, you know, it, it goes so against the logic of, of the whole, of everything. Right, <laughs> no, right, so right. It's, it's oftentimes these things Jesus says sometimes I think are the most severe. They're actually said in some ways tongue in cheek, right? Right. And then, and then the church doesn't get it. Like, see, this is why we can excommunicate people. Right. Three times and you're out. <laughs> Right. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, do you think that, that, or I, I don't know, but like Christ as a comic figure, I think has not been fully explored. I think that's, I think that's true. Like, I think there's really, I mean, 
I mean, for, I, I guess Hegel explores it, but he, and Hegel was very funny himself, but I, I, I mean, I, I, it seems like it's explored philosophically, but then it gets kind of dropped. Like no, like followers of Hegel don't talk about his, Christ, his Christianity is not a major part of, of, or his theorization of Christ is not a major part of the way people talk about Hegel. Yeah. Among some Lutherans. Maybe. Most, right. Mostly right of right. center, but it, right. yeah, a part of it too, I think Hegel doesn't strike me as totally at home in the Bible, say the way Strauss was, or even Schleiermacher. Right. I mean, there's this, there's this, and, and I think some of the funniness is not on the, it's on the face of the, te- I mean, Capon says, you know, there's three kinds of parables. There's the parables in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, where they're, they, he calls them the parable of the kingdom, where he's saying the kingdom is like this, and it's always Catholic, mysterious, and strangely present. Everybody thinks it's apocalyptic. No, the real apocalyptic is right here in the eye. Right, right, right. And then, and then he says there's the parables of grace, which happened after the feeding of the 5,000. He says, up to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus still looks like a legitimate Messiah. Like, he still looks like he could be the one. All right, he's not rousing up, he's like, but he's still, he, he could be the guy. And he says, that's when the parables shift, and he thinks the theme is death and resurrection. Yeah. And then at the end of his life, he says, parables of judgment, which he thinks, I mean, Bart says the, the, the gospel story, right? It's the judge judge in our place. Like, what did, what's the first parent sin? Wanting to judge themselves. Right. This is right. This is right. And it, Jesus is the only one who judges and doesn't seem like an ass. Right, like we're going right. to do it on this day and not that day. You know, I'm not an asshole. It, it, <laughs> and it's like, and, and yet the judge is judged in the place of the judges. Yeah. It's, it's this yeah. weird, like the true judge. So I think there is, but you have to sort of stay. And I think everything Hegel says is right about the sort of reconciliation, you know, the infinite, the finite God and death. But it operates even in, in funny ways, the granular level of the parable. Right, right, <laughs> right. Which he wasn't really interested in. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And most pastors aren't. Yeah. Like, like you, you, I mean, and most Christians aren't, right? Most yeah. Christians aren't interested in, I mean, the real power of any faith tradition or philosophy is it lets you live in what, in this strange combination of lack and excess that is life, right? And, but most, it's funny, David French, who I've had on the podcast for time for the National Review, he wrote this great piece called, um, Roy Moore and the Rise of Creepy Christianity. He said there's, Christianity struggles with two things, either trying to be overly relevant and loses some of the particularity of the Hebraic, yeah. or it tries to control and say, well, let, rather than being something that gets you through the anxious and fragile things of life. If you marry the right person, if you raise, if you do these sort of things, the anxiety will go away and right. it becomes a controlling thing. And so often people just go to these texts and like, well, let's turn it into a how-to to manage your anxiety right. rather than this is what actually could allow you to see the lack and excess and, without needing to manage it. Right. And, and to be able to genuinely experience the anxiety. I mean, I think, isn't that what's great about Kierkegaard as a, as a theologian? Like for him, like faith isn't the, isn't the deliverance from anxiety. It's actually like the deliverance to anxiety. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you can be present to it in a way yeah. that you don't have to suppress it. Right? Yeah. yeah. I totally think that. And this goes back to this thing, maybe sectarianism and addiction, these ways that like there's this, thing with lack and excess which is your theory of the comic no it's funny you say in in the book early on you're like look this lack and excess and the way it's addressed has to also catch us by surprise it has to bring disparate elements you know the it's the most brilliant analysis of um of uh uh and now it escapes me the the the, the hangover right the hangover yeah that i i never had thought about how brilliant when you say this guy who in the beginning he's missing a teeth, we figure out he's a dentist, all these things. It's so amazingly funny. It's really funny. Yeah. And then you're like, and the second one, 
they try to recreate it. He's got the Mike Tyson tattoo. Da, da, da. And it's not funny it's not, at all. It pa- is painfully not funny. Yeah. Because, Partially because we expect it, right? Right. Because, it, and it's not surprising, right? Like, like yeah. a dentist having pulled out his own tooth to show his expertise. That's not something that takes us by surprise, right? Like we don't, no one would expect that. Whereas someone getting, getting drunk and having a Mike Tyson tattoo. I mean, okay. We don't see that every day, but it's not, that's not a crazy thing. It's not unexpected, right? Like the drunken tattoo, it's almost a cliche. So I really feel like that's a key element. I mean, that, that, to me, that's the, that's the, it's the kind of, a friend of mine once said, what you're really talking about is a comic trigger. Like if, if lack and excess together is the comic, then that the surprise is the trigger that like makes it, allows the comic to kind of appear to us. And you talk about, right, is it like you say that, you know, a preschool teacher that you walked in her classroom and she murdered all the kids that combines lack and excess it does. and it's un and it's surprising and there's nothing funny about it at all. It's just, well, right. There's nothing funny, but I don't, I guess I wouldn't, I think it's excessive and I think it's surprising, but I don't think it combines lack. I think I'm, I want to be, I'm pretty much a believer in the theory that if it really combines lack and excess, it's funny. Like, like, so the, to my mind, I think the preschool teacher murdering all of her kids, we cannot approach, we cannot see that as excess. We, I mean, the gesture is excessive, but we cannot look at the kids in any way other than as in terms of pathos. Like we just feel bad for them. Like it's, that's why you cannot laugh. Like I, I give this example in the, in the book. Like I once fell down the stairs. I'm looking at it right now of this and, and, and I came down crashing down and my kids both thought that was hilarious. They were laughing. They were about, I don't know, seven or something at the time. And, and my spouse was like, she was screaming. She thought she was so worried about me. And it's just because for her, I was just completely a pathetic old guy. I'm falling down his steps, not, you know, potentially hurt. And so I think that's the thing with the, the preschool kids, like the, the gestures are separate, like the excess of killing them. Okay. But we can only look at them as lacking. So I don't think we can, I don't think there's any way to laugh at that. Although but you we, do, go ahead. Go ahead. You do say, right. Like the next page are like, but Dr. Str- but now you might think nuclear Holocaust, not funny, but I was just <laughs> like, Dr. Strange love is funny. It's right? funny. I was just going to say, that's funny that you said that. Cause I was just going to say, we can even laugh at the destruction of the entire world, right? Like that's what Dr. Strange love has us laugh at. And I think it's, to me, it's the second funniest film ever made. And I think you'd argue it's the first funny. It's the funniest. I mean, it's really, it's pretty great. I think. What's your number one? Everybody's sitting uh, at, the, at the edge of their seat. Now, listening. <laughs> to be or not to be. Do you know it? No one knows it. No. By Ernst Lubitsch. So it's, uh, 1941. And th- one of the first lines is this guy is disguised as Hitler and he, he's playing a little scene. Hitler is in it. I, I mean, not Hitler himself, but someone playing it. And he comes, <laughs> he comes into a, everyone's like, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. And then Hitler goes, Heil myself. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's been great. And then the director's like, stop, cut, cut, cut. We, that's too funny. And the guy's like, I thought he'd get a laugh. And the guy's like, this is a serious play we're doing. So it's, it is like, to me, I, I'm teaching a class on silent cinema right now. And tomorrow's our last, our last film. And I was going to show some, you know, Marx Brothers like Duck Soup or something. And then I just happened to ask them, has anyone seen to be or not to be? Hundred students, they're all zero. And so I said, I'm changing this. I, I just want to have everyone see this film. And, you know, my, I, I, my sons who are now 13, they're, they're, they just said, 
anybody who says there's another comedy above to be or not to be, we, we can't even have a conversation with them. They're a little elitist, I think, but that's, <laughs> that's their view. I, I'm watching this film. I'm, 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 is it streamable? Do you know? Is uh, it- I don't think it is. I, well, I mean, you'd have to get it in a non, you know, uh, you know, not. Do you, have you, do you remember that film with Jack Lemon and, um, Oh, the guy who played uh, the Rockford Files. Um, they're the two ex presidents, and they're old and they're kind of corrupt. James Garner, right? And they're of different yeah. parties, and they're like, and, and they're talking oh, about yeah, like yeah. being president, and they're talking about hail to the chief with yeah. no words. And they're like, did you did you make up words? Yeah, my words were hail to the chief. <laughs> he's the chief, and he's and mine was hail to the chief. If you don't, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> thinking, yeah, great. of course. What is the president doing? Well, and that's a Bill Clinton. I remember when his first interview by uh, Conan O'Brien. Well, what was the hardest thing to get used to not being president? Well, nobody plays music when you walk in a room. That's the first thing you notice. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is so great. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen Zora the Gay Blade? I have seen Zora the Gay Blade. I that's like Zora one of the my, Gay Blade. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. not there's not a line in that film that's not funny. It's very funny. Yeah, yeah. It might be what actually makes it. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, what happened? Okay. This is Apologize. true long form, folks. We're not even editing that out. It's okay. an iPhone ring. Everyone can tell he's not an Android man. Um, no, but that's almost what, and that's one of my top 10, but maybe that, the, the movie is almost too perfect in that regard. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and a, no, it's, it's like pretty great. I don't every, think it's every line is yeah. so like, yeah. but. I mean, so, I know so, you think, I, I, I think the, I mean, Strange Love, I think is, a, but I think, uh, don't you think there have been some recent really good comedies like that, The Heat with, Melissa McCarthy. I don't know if you've seen that. I think that's pretty, pretty great. I think Hangover is pretty great. Hangover is pretty great. Yeah. The, the last, the last funny movie, the last like comedic movie I watched was the one with Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn. That was, which was funny, but like I said to my wife, which my wife and I were just talking about this two nights ago because we had watched Through the Gate Blade again. Um, because I was like working late doing yeah. some editing on a podcast and I was kind of watching it to sort of like keep me awake. And, and I said, you know, it, that I just don't think the writing was that good. Yeah, I think like, that's the problem. So, so there, there's not. It's funny. There's a Snatched lot of funny situation. About. But yeah, right. And and it, the the premise is pretty good. And it's a great premise, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's just not. I mean, I think you know the, the ultimate. If you want to talk about lack and excess, right? I, I mean, it might be crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, like yeah. as far as the the writing is great, but it's. It's not, it's never over understated. <laughs> there's, there's real relational pain. <laughs> like, yeah. it's so, it's so much. And the, and the cinematography. That's like a great eye. film. I mean, that's, a, I almost, it's hard to call that a comedy, don't you think though? Because, I mean, it has some great comic moments, but this is, I think it's, it's his most accomplished film. <laughs> it's like, um, you, you think nobody had compared him to Mussolini before. <laughs> That's funny that you said that's exactly the scene I was thinking about as one of Woody Allen's funniest scenes, actually. But then you talk about unconscious, right? And yeah. and things where like he says, he said repeatedly, you know, because this is all going on with Mia Farrow's daughter and yeah. he, oh no, it's not, I mean these, and you don't know if it's suppression or maybe unconscious. It right, really, it, and his own alter ego and the Alan Alda, you know, and, and the whole like, and the documentary and his idealized self and this, all this is just like, man, I mean that, I mean, the brilliance of that film and the camera things too, right? Because I, I feel like avant-garde stuff, you, you, you never forget the cameras there. Blockbuster stuff, 
Ah, oh, let's make him forget. They're Thor for a minute. But that, the cinematography, right? It's the perfect blend at it's times perfect. of like, yeah. we're, oh, wait, there's a camera here. Right, right. Yeah, I think, and and the, like the way, I thought the way that that film thematized like sight and blindness was amazing. Like, you know, remember the Sam Watterson characters? He's the only kind of ethical center of the film and he's going blind. I think he is blind at the end. And then, you know, like the, the, the characters you think are the upright ones are the ones that are, are the, end up being the most correct. I mean, so it's just really hard to, I mean, I, th- I just thought it was real. And then, and then in the end, I think that, I thought that time where Martin Landau sits and tells Woody Allen that story. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, I thought that gosh. was really, I mean, in some way, I thought it was a kind of indictment of all. Woody Allen's other films, you know, like where they kind of everything kind of wraps up in a in a way. So I I think that's I think that's his greatest achievement. I mean, I, and, but you're right; it has some incredible, like the whole stuff with Alan Alda. For some and, and reason, ra- Woody Allen knew how to direct him. You know, like I don't know if yeah. you've seen Manhattan Murder Mystery, but that one I find that one also incredibly funny. And, and the rabbi, you know, you think about this like going blind at the end. So like you know every. You know, happily ever after, a wedding feast, and, and you know the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian tradition, this history ends in a wedding. Like that's sort of a wedding, life, progeny, future, and dancing with his daughter. And you don't know is it, but he's blind. Is it like sort of naivete, or is it we walk by faith and not by sight? Like the 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 rabbis, like he, there's something that admirable about him, and yet I can't tell if he's being esteemed, right. Or mocked. I, I don't think it's. Cl- I think that's what's really great about the film is. I think you. It does not take a stand on that. Like you have, or maybe it's both at the same time, right? Like both. It's this is a kind of admirable position, but it's also the cost of it is he's he has to blind himself to all the things that are really going on in the world because he does even say that he goes doesn't he say something like I prefer to live in a world like I'm always suspicious of people that say things like that like <laughs> I prefer to live in a world well okay I would prefer to live in a world without you know like donald trump as president but you know i think you have to still kind of deal with that you know and and i feel like that kind of i mean it seems like his position is predicated on a little bit of fetishistic disavowal and that maybe complicates our our esteem for him and trump is not very i mean it's weird because it's a strange combination of lack and excess right he's completely excessive and and lacks many things like and yet there's no self-awareness i know do you it think seems- he's funny i i i i i didn't want to bring up trump because everybody talks about him and it's kind of tedious but but i did so um but i i part of me thinks that all the excess is so baldly f- like feigned that it's that all I can think of. I look at him. I think he's just pathetic. Like I don't. Right, right. But and the feigness. The thing is that the feigness is manipulative, right? Right. But it's not manipulative like Machiavellian genius. It's hey, look. It's so even the feigness lacks awareness. Right. So like right. the whole thing. Like you know, my wife and I tried to watch that Comedy Central show. The um. The, the president show, yeah. like, um, cause I've heard that guy in Stern. He's hilarious. They did a debate between he and Bernie Sanders. And there's this one line where like, you know, B- Bernie would quote all the stats. Like I got, uh, of yoga, female yoga instructors that got off social media for political reasons. I got 91% of home, uh, of, uh, Whole Foods shoppers who, don't bring their own bags. I got 82%. And, and then the, and it's, Stern goes, well, what about the ones that bring their own bags? And then the Trump guy goes, they went to Jill Stein. And, <laughs> and, you're like, and the whole thing is so brilliant, right? So I thought this is going to be great. But 
on the Trump podcast, the Trump cast that Slate does, right? There's a part in every episode where they get the guy who is this great Trump yeah, impersonator. Yeah. And he got, I mean, he was doing these tours. Stern kind of helped popularize him. But they do a part where he just reads the tweets, right? And, and my podcast, I do with my friend Bill. It's called New Persuasive Words. Sometimes I'll just read the tweets. No, this, uh, this is... I'll just read the first one I saw. I'm not okay. cherry picking. Right. This is the most recent tweet. Yesterday, I was thrilled to be with so many, all caps, wonderful friends in Utah's, all caps, magnificent capital. It was my honor to sign two presidential proclamations that will modify the national monuments designations of both Bears Ears and Grand Escalante. There's something about reading it in in any kind of even bad Trump voice yeah. that's hilarious. It, even, it's that's funny. not even one of the good ones. Yeah. Like that's not yeah. even one where he's trying to be witty. <laughs> the ones where he's the ones where he goes like we were reading the other day and he does these parentheses and commentate like co- like, like commenting on himself. Right. Right. And then right. these things are like, but it's so absurd. Right. That you you can't. Even the Saturday Night Live stuff, it's kind of funny. Like, but he, it's so, it's so pales in comparison to the absurdity. Yeah. That you can't really. It's hard to laugh, I think, actually. Don't yeah, you? Yeah. 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 And partially too, I think, is a society that one, I mean, look, America is, you know, has many, many, many problems, but one of them that one thing that is really significant about us is we have decent democratic institutions. Like you get someone like Trump in Venezuela or something, right? It's trouble. Any progress you made can be undone. But like, so there's this, the fact that they are not as secure as we maybe think with this, there's a mass trauma that we need to talk and laugh about it probably. (laughs) But, but but any attempt to like, it's, he's just like funny all by, I mean, I, I, I I watch Sarah Huckabee Sanders if I can on those things. I mean, I, I even find that just so like, yeah. it, it's just a strange thing. It's right? crazy. I mean, it's- like, well, I mean, part of it is you hear people say things that I don't you wonder about their level of belief or maybe that's even the wrong question to pose, right? Like, cause they'll say things that contradict the things that they've said, you know, a week ago. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like it, it's, it, it's almost like they're speaking just to be speaking, you know, and it, I, whether, it's believed or not doesn't even that's not even part of the calculus right and you're in a career like whatever you think of sean spicer's politics right like here's a guy that was at least somebody that people thought was credible was a career navy guy communications guy like you know it it, it seemed a pretty decent person like work and became a punchline for no other reason than these weird like go out there and say the crowd was bigger Right. You know, I mean, it, it, it's the Kim Jong-un thing. It's the lead. I mean, when when um, when the mooch said, I seen him in a top coat hitting free throws. I seen him throw a spiral through a thing. I, I was like, this is like the leader. Like, this is like Kim Jong-un. Like yeah. he's yeah. 18 holes. Hole one is first round of golf. Yeah. I mean, you you. <laughs> You, you, it, 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 and that's actually funnier. It is funnier. Like yeah. the, the, the regime, cause it's the lack of excess is actually, but this thing is just so absurd. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I agree. I, I don't, I mean, it, it's funny because you would, I mean, Obama was terrible for comedians. Uh, who was funny himself. I had David Litt, his speechwriter on the podcast and the guy who just wrote that the yeah. memoir. He said, he talks to him. He, Obama was really funny. That seems, like, I, that seems right to me. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just had timing. He had self-awareness. He saw the ironies and things and, you know, like this hope change guy grinding in the establishment. Yeah. It's a guy like, yeah. 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 But, but. And Bush was great. I mean, Bush was great for coming. But I think we've, I think it's been like the last two have been a kind of a down time for comedians because I think Trump is just, it's just, it's not, 
I think it, he, I think the thing is his excesses are not, you can't, because they're not really excessive, you can't translate them into, you can't make them lacking and, or you can't even, you know, which I think is what oftentimes the, you know, like Dana Carvey to me is the great genius of his, the, the first Bush, what he did. And he was able to like take the little excessive gestures and just, and, and, you know, show the way in which they were connected. This is what I would, I would theorize that they were connected to some kind of lack in him, you know? And I think Trump, the, 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 that same dynamic isn't at work because the excess is always just, it's always faint. And so it's not, you know, it's, it's never, you never get this thing that you can really mock. I feel. Yeah. And when you say excess, I mean, in your book, you talk about, look, because we have sort of primal psychic wounding, all of us, some more than others, but we have this, we're trying to get home, you know, like, right. and if, if, from the sort of source origins, you know, all the kind of psychoanalytic, the unconscious backdrop, right? Yeah. So then society gives us a sense of acceptance. Well, if you do this, right. but then, you know, it's, it's the whole thing of being in a fight club, I'm on the toilet with Ikea and ordering all these things. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, so then you do these excessive things like Ikea or fancy football or you get drunk with your buddies, go to a strip club or something. But the excess, right, is a response to this kind of tragic primal wound torn open you're trying to heal. And so it's blowing off. For Trump, the excesses are just seem just libidinal. Like everything's a libid. There's no like there's no messiness in the story. Right. It's just right. all it's just all id. Right. Well, do you think it's all id? I I, I know people say that. I my my sort of wild psychoanalytic reading is that Trump, whatever he is personally, is that I think he's a super egoic figure for us as a society. Like he like think about the way like he constantly is calling us back to like you know do our you know like we should feel okay about doing things that we don't think we should do. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, we should feel okay about enriching ourselves. We should feel like, like so I feel like there's this kind of like com this compulsive aspect of superego that's involved in what he, how he, you know, he interacts with us and how we, and why he's popular actually. Like, I don't think he, I think he, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's this sort of pressure on us to, to not to, it's interesting. Cause I think the superego is different now, right? Like it's not, telling us to act to not lie to act proper instead it's saying like you we're not getting our right share like isn't that like i just heard him talk today about nafta you know he's like mexico's stealing from us canada's stealing from us because of all these bad now we're going to get ours and so that to me feels like that's the pressure of the superego saying we haven't done our proper duty in signing all these treaties and now we're going to do it yeah but i don't think the word duty though it's so you know i think of like luther and the law gospel okay. stuff right where for luther like for me i read the superego as like the law yeah well which, i don't like, know wait, i think go ahead uh, uh, or like, well, and it could be, no, it doesn't even be moral. It'd be, it be the, the, you know, you're the trip, the third, you're somebody, somebody, the third, live up to the family expectation. Or it might be in the form of religion or something. There's this kind of, and maybe in that regard, but it's also usually comes with some sort of like, for, with Trump, it seems just so, uh, even a dark ideal doesn't even you can't even imagine being Darth Vader I mean you can't you know like, like, like there's this weird but maybe you're right maybe that's our degenerated super even that's our super ego is bad right now it's <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the sort of era of like contemporary capitalism like that's the figure of the super ego because like I mean you're right it's it's a sort of it's it's not duty in the sense that we usually think of it, but isn't it a perverted sense of duty to say that we've betrayed our our country's been betrayed? We we got to start start you know standing up to the Chinese, to the blah blah blah, you know, to the Mexicans, to all these people. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's 
I, and, and, you know, for Freud, what's great about his theory is that the, the, his notion of the superego is that it draws its energy from the id. He has this little diagram where he has the superego coming all the way down into the id and sort of coming up with that, hmm. all that energy. So I, I, I think clearly, Trump, I mean, you almost could say Trump's command to us is enjoy your, you really need to be enjoying yourself in a way that you haven't been because you've been screwed over by, you know, by Obama, by Hillary Clinton, by, by China, by Mexican workers, you know. So I think that that seems to me his, his, the source of his appeal to the extent that he has an appeal. Yeah. Wow, we spent a lot of time psychoanalyzing time. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry <laughs> about that. Well, can, no, it's my, you, we can't avoid it. I mean, it's, you're right. It is, he is, I mean, the one, uh, uh, godly virtue he has is ubiquity. It's a metaphysical, not a moral one, but he is ubiquitous right yeah, now. Right? Yeah, no, I mean, he is. Just, I mean, it is, but it is. It does. I, I do feel like it, it, you know, even I succumbed to it. Like I gave a talk here and I, 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 someone said, well, talk on Trump and Citizen Kane and everyone will come. And it's true. Everyone came. So I wish I didn't do it, but I kind of sucked. I sucked up to the, to the popular demand. So. Um, I know there's a pastor in New York, Tim Keller and has, started a church like 15 years ago in Manhattan and it was wildly successful. And he's this kind of unassuming, you would look at this guy and you would not think this guy would be successful. He wears dockers and kind of yeah. wears sort of like weird sports jackets. Yeah. And you can always see his white t-shirt with his unbuttoned, like, you know, Oxford. He's just dumpy kind yeah. of, but he, he said, you know, he's given a talk on the seven deadly, serious talks on the seven deadly sins at some New York club. And his wife said, when are you doing greed? He says, well, in four weeks. Why? Because that'll be the least attended. <laughs> And he was like, why? Because somebody, because I said, well, they make, but I'm not greedy because <laughs> I'm making 800 grand. But I mean, the, the hedge manager, a, a guy, funds me, funds me too. That's not greed. I mean, it's very, right. you know. No, it's great. That's a great point. I think it's a really great point. Yeah. So Nietzsche says the sacred is what we can't laugh at. And I, there's not much as a shared society. We yeah. agree that we can And I, maybe 9-11. And you talk in your book about Chris Rock's 9-11. Routine, I love that right? joke. Yeah. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about that? Because I think it's interesting because Chris Rock got a lot of heat about it. He did. And it was a great, it was prophetic kind of coming. There was a critique of the whole system. Right. I think he did it on Saturday Night Live when he was, which is why he probably got the most, it was visible. So he got a lot of critique. So he said, um, you know, people, people, he said some, I think the joke started. He said, well, I can't believe they're building another building at the side of the Twin Towers. He goes, he goes what are they going to, they're going to put some stores in there. He goes, they ought to, should put in a Target, which I thought was a, I thought that was a great line. And he goes, then he goes, don't start to get about, get on me about telling, I don't know if he said capitalism, but he said some marketer, People are going to start using 9-11 as a, as a tool for – he's like, Red Lobster's going to say, come down and have shrimp. They're $9.11 for, you know, on 9-11. And so, and, you know, so his point was even that sacred thing could be – was going to be – and I think it's true. I mean, like I've seen a 9-11 sale. They, I mean, it becomes commodified too, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it is – it's uh, – yeah. I mean, it, 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 truer words, right? Like you also say in the beginning of the book – that basically you see, you know, love, death. These, there's a book called um, The uh, Vehement Passions written a few years uh, by a guy at Harvard who was saying the, the, the divided to be or not to be, like modernity, we're always like conflicted. He's like, but the great thing with the vehement passions is they're monarchic, right? Like right. Kind of, they take you over wrath, lust, whatever. They, they, they generally don't. And, and they give us a window on ourselves. But you say, you say 
that love and death are both experiences that when you reflect on them can enhance them. Yeah. And you say it's really tough with the comedic. It, it 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 almost seems to dissipate. Like if you think to it, it, right. it, it seems to not enrich it. I think that's true. Like like, well, I mean, or it just doesn't work. Like I think it doesn't tend to. For one thing, it doesn't tend to provoke reflection. Like if we fall in love, all we would do is like talk about our love. We'd say, "What is love? Are we really in love?" But the comic, you just kind of laugh and then you go on, you know. And I think, but I also feel like it's just like the way in which if you explain your love with someone, then that kind of deepens it. But if you, if you explain, have to explain a joke, it often, I mean, almost all the time destroys it unless you include the explanation, unless you include the fact that you had to, you make a joke about that, but that's not reflecting on it. That's like interrupting the reflection in order to introduce a new joke. You know, like I do that all the time because I tell a lot of bad jokes. And so I'll say, oh, I can see that one really was, that was a really great joke, you know, whatever, or some stupid thing. And then uh, oftentimes that will at least gain a little, like, or I'll say, wow, you know, I spent three hours last night coming up with that joke and that's all you got for me. And then the students will sometimes, ah, ha, ha, ha. but I, but I'm in a, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not reflecting on the joke. I'm, I'm introducing a new kind of non-reflective thing to then make a joke about. But I really think it's, it's almost impossible to, and I guess I was just trying to make sense of why there are so few theories of comedy. You know, that's, that was what I was trying to think about. Like, it's this, it's, you know, like tragedy is confined to these different little small epochs in human history and comedy is ubiquitous. Like I think, I don't know if there's ever been a time without comedy. I do say one time, like, and there's probably no one that's told a joke, not so no one that's not told a joke in their life. And, and I do say in the book, like maybe Martin Heidegger is the exception because he's this, he's this philosopher who has nothing to do with comedy. And, and I sort of use him as a foil for Hegel in the book, um, you know, fairly or unfairly. I don't know. But, but so, so you would think there'd be a ton I mean, Heidegger, of people. I mean, Heidegger is a tragic yeah. figure. I mean, yeah, it's funny because I had a friend who um, was a student of Coet, like self-psychology yeah. stuff yeah. and psychiatrist. Yeah. And his kind of, one of the, the, the other senior guys, um, the friend is, you know, passed away of blessed memory now, but one of the other senior guys in the field did a PhD on Heidegger and didn't figure out he was a Nazi until like three years after he finished. And you know, you think about that, right? But you think about like, I've heard Heidegger would teach Aristotle like this. Aristotle was born. Correct. He lived, he worked and he died. He died. And now it's going to stop. So this, there is this sort of thing. If, if you see life that reductively, then it's very easy. It's funny that the student could. Yeah. A brilliant guy, a psychiatrist that went and did a PhD after he was a psychiatrist yeah. and didn't know. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you know, I think Heidegger's relationship to Nazism is fascinating. And, and, uh, you know, I was, I was at a meeting of the Heidegger circle. I just, I, I was interloper. I got someone snuck me in and it's, it's a, it's a, it's still a dicey subject with, with the people that are, you know, right on Heidegger because it's, it, it's this whole problem. Like I devoted my whole life to this guy and to what extent is his thought sort of stained irrevocably by Nazism? But I mean, I guess maybe I, I didn't pick him for, because of the Nazism thing, but I did pick him because he's, he's sort of, I, in some way, he's kind of the 20th century response to Hegel's because he's so much a philosopher of finitude. You know, like we're just, all we are is finite. All we are are finite beings. And, and, and for Hegel, what we are, like we're also burdened with this infinite nature that we can't, 
we can't just shuck off and, and just pretend that we're purely finite. And, and I, th- I guess my claim was that's why Heidegger's not funny. Like if you think all you are is a finite being, then you cannot be funny. That th- there has to be that collision with this transcendent, infinite, you know, excessive. Yeah. The, the, the possibility for incongruity and it being existentially like, afflicting is not i mean mark twain says right that in heaven there will be laughter but no humor yeah because humor is always built on incongruity lack and excess so laughter doesn't need right uh the comic right right? i mean right laughter is different laughter is different absolutely you can be laughing without something being funny right um right but something truly funny needs these incongruities yeah and there is something about heidegger when certain things he's talking about there is a kind of the phenomenological thing, there's some insight there, but it's sort of like, well, what do I do with that? I know. I know. I mean, there's great insight at times, I think, like about death and about, about idle chatter and the they and all this stuff. But, you know, it's interesting because his example, he gives an example in this uh, fun, is it Fundamental Consoles Metaphysics, I think, a seminar that he gives. And he gives his example, he gives an example of boredom. And I, th- I, I point this out, I think, in the book that his example of boredom is a boring example of boredom. So it's, <laughs> his example is I'm bored when I'm waiting on a train. And I thought, you know what? If Hegel gave an example of boredom, it'd be funny. Like you could, you could imagine like a funny, like boring, boredom, boredom is funny. And, but that's just a boring example of boredom. And even in like certain parts, like the phenomenology of spirit, like even the master slave stuff, you could imagine Seinfeld, who's the master? Who's the, it's like when Seinfeld says, you know, the Martian goes, who's the master? Who's the, who's the pet? Who's the owner? One's walking around picking up the other's extra. It's like, well, who's the slave? Who's the master? Because one, even though it's right, requires this person's work for his psychic. Like, that is so like, perfect. There, yeah. There's something about the whole master slave dialectic that is, Funny. It's funny. Like, even yeah. though you can't write funny in German at the time, because you just kind of like, you know, you're not taken seriously unless your prose is impenetrable. Although, right, <laughs> I, right. Although he does, there are jokes. In, I mean, the phenomenology is filled with jokes, actually. So it's, it's an interesting. I mean, they're not like, you know, not like the jokes, not like Tiger Woods jokes, but they right, are. Right, right. Yeah. But there's, uh, yeah, there's humor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So you say at the end of the book, you say that if we, if we adopt a kind of dismissive attitude toward comedy, it marks a failure to see that the experience of comedy is not an interlude between moments of everyday life, right? That's what we, that's the, tr- the oh, I got to blow off some steam and laugh at yeah, this high enough, yeah. get me through, you know, working for the weekend, right? Um, rather, everyday life is an interlude between moments of comedy. Uh, and, and you say whether it's conservative or egalitarian, kind of left-wing, right-wing, yeah. traditionalist, right? Experiencing comedy is always an existential act that forces us to confront the basic structure of our subjectivity. Comedy is not always radical, but it always is speculative yeah yeah so i mean do you when you teach this stuff to undergrads do they get that i mean do you do you like does that is that one of those things that that where you see light bulbs in it yeah i mean yeah in fact i would have to say that i so i taught a one two classes i guess so i taught a class on some films and then i taught a class just on theory of comedy at the same time when i was writing this book and I think it was my most successful class, like the comedy class. They really, really felt like they got that, that, that they got that in some way comedy was that what comedy did was essential to understanding themselves as subjects. So I think that was really, I guess, you know, I find that younger people today, like comedy really speaks to them. And I think they, I think that that class appealed because they really wanted to understand why it spoke to them. You know, like it's one thing to like, I like to laugh. I mean, everyone likes to. 
to laugh at comedy, but it's another thing to say, like, understand, like, what maybe the reason I like to laugh says something that's really profound about what my situation is as a subject. And so I feel like that was that part you just read. Usually when I hear something that I wrote, I want to just cut my wrists and let the blood come out of my veins. But uh, that, I didn't mind that. Todd, Todd, tell us how you really feel about your writing. Come on, don't hold back. <laughs> I was trying to think of a, I was trying to be less graphically violent, but, um, uh, that, <laughs> I didn't mind that actually as a closing. Is that the end of it? Yeah, that's yeah. the beginning. It's, it's, on the, it's on the first page of the conclusion. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I still believe that, I guess. And it's, it's been, the book's only been out for a couple months. So in a year, I probably won't, but at least now I still believe it. Yeah. It's interesting to you talk about, this fundamentally speculative act. And I think when we say, it's funny how words, their shelf life, like I think of the Protestant reformers thought of this word imputation is so important that, well, gosh, it's like Les Miserables in this moment where Jean Valjean is treated better than he should be. Yeah. And that's the power to evoke moral imagination. Now, impute, you imputed bad motives. We can only use it negatively. I think the same way about speculation or the speculative, I mean, you're using that as something worth uh, un- undertaking. I mean, part of what m- makes like, takings beyond the Heidegger right, finite, right, just right. one damn thing after another. Right. You, but the word speculate, I mean, it, it, and maybe even the word uh, intellectual, I mean, it's some of these words, I mean, it, it, the kind of thing you're saying completes the human condition or makes it, or actually makes it human. Yeah. The words to describe it today have fallen on hard times. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I feel like, um, I don't want to, you know, romanticize the past and say it was better, but I do feel like, you know, like part of it is just the way something that's sacred, like 9-11. He goes, it's kind of like, I think speculation and, and, you know, reflection, I don't know, uh, philosophy, like I think that, or intellectual, whatever, like I feel like it's hard to do that when you're reading it off a phone or, or off a computer. You know, like I really feel like the, and just the time, you know, the time, even I find myself, I don't have as much time to read. Like I used to just have a lot more time to sit around and read books and it, it just, that, that I think that's the problem. To me, that's the problem. And I, I find it when students, I find it with just people I meet all the time that there are all these things that just, which are, which are communicate, they communicate with us, but in a totally phatic way, you know, like they don't say all they're doing is just communicating for the sake of communicating. Like, you know, like following the Russia investigation, like what's the point of even following that? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just like the, Oh my God, shocking revelation after shocking revelation. After, and we're supposed to be shocked and shocked and shocked. It's like a, you know, it's like, to me, it's like going to an orgy where it's like, everyone's going to be better than the next. And they're all kind of just, they all sort of blend together. And so I feel like it's really hard to be speculative today. So I don't, I don't, and I don't have a good, I don't have a good answer for that, a good solution for that. But I do, I totally agree with your diagnosis of the situation. And is that because, I mean, it, this is the, the, you know, the, what is Weber called the iron trap of modernity or whatever where you, I mean, all the technology and stuff, it, it promised us more leisure, but the problem is it get, it raises expectations for productivity. And well, you can t- email slow now, so, email is a new snail mail, text message, instant message, right. this. So like you're, so you're, you're, it's funny because I was reading an article about 
for a podcast conversation a few episodes ago about the whole net neutrality thing. And they were saying that, you know, when the net neutrality rules were made, it was an analog device and you had to go online. I'm going to go online. And my wife was like, yeah. And like, it's annoying because you couldn't talk on the phone. Get off the internet, Jeremy. I need to make a phone call. So there was this clear demarcation between you when you entered this alternative world to go on Prodigy or um, my wife's um, younger brother developed a whole alter ego. He was a, he was a fisher, a lobster fisherman in Maine. He would go into these chat rooms and and he would check the weather and be like, well, the seas are dicey. He's like 13 doing this. Like, but like you, it's clear that you were, it was a, a, an escape or a thing. And now Wasn't one of them even called Second Life or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Second Life right. was, that was, that was kind of in the age of broadband, but, but it was still now with, with, with smartphones, everybody's an iPhone or an Android, every, everything. It, it, you are, we are cyborgs, right? right? I and mean, right. we are, right. and so it's lack and excess, right? We have an excess of ability to connect and a lack of anything meaningful. See, to I almost about. think that what you just described, doesn't it sound like addiction? Like I think, yeah. Like yeah. we we do it more and more and more, and we get less and less and less of a result from it. And I, I find it very sad. I don't know. I mean, but I don't know that there's a, you know, there. I don't know that there's a detox center open anywhere. You know, metaphorically, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, I guess at one time I was sanguine that the, that the dissatisfying nature of it would produce a kind of effect that would produce a response. But I'm not. I don't see that happening. I mean, I do, I do, I guess certain things give me hope. Like I have a lot of students who pr- they prefer to read actual books because they, you know, so there is, there are certain things that are kind of hopeful, I guess, but I don't know. It's hard. It's a hard situation. And I think it, you know, like every, the other thing is I think it makes us into such private beings, you know, like there's no like public connect. I mean, you were just saying that like no public connection with other people, which is, you know, that's, that's brutal. I feel. Yeah, I mean, Bill O'Reilly, when he was on top of cable news, I mean, his peak, like, he's getting three million people a night, which is, but that's less than 1% of the population. Yeah. And that's the, so these things, in, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's, uh, it's lack and excess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, yeah. this is, uh, fantastic. And I, I hope you'll come back again because I feel like we could, we barely talked about your book, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I would, I would be happy anytime as I, the time flew by. So <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, we could, you know, we could, I could talk to you all day. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks so much. Okay. And I'll Thank you, you again for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks so much to Todd McGowan for being on the podcast. Get his book, Only a Joe Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy. It is fantastic. Thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.